Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 325, Athelred, From Bad to Worse. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Omri, Barney, and James for signing up already. When we left off, England was reforming its legal structure. And I know, law is not known for being a sexy subject. Neither are lawyers for that matter. But law shapes our societies in ways that are so fundamental that they're often invisible to us. And these reforms are no exception. These codes would go on to transform English life. Because what Athelred and his court were doing was binding the kingdom together under one body of law. And they're even including the powerful but rebellious area of the Dane law. But amidst this move towards order and organization, the Vikings were once again throwing the countryside into chaos. In 998, the giant fleet of Viking raiders that had been harrying the west of England turned east. They rowed their ships into the mouth of the river from, and from there, they used the extensive network of natural waterlands to move deeper inland into Dorset. So now, it wasn't just the coastal settlements that were at risk. Everywhere in Dorset was at risk. But Dorset wasn't just some random territory without any defenses. It was part of the old kingdom of Wessex, and as such, it was integrated into the Burgle defense system. A system that Alfred and his children had used to turn their lands into a fortress. No matter where the Vikings went, there would be a burr and a ferd manning that burr that could be called upon to defend the lands and their people. And so, as the Vikings left their ships, and as they marched upon the settlements of Dorset, the ferd was called. And soon they came within view of the pirate army and the men of the Ferd took their positions on the field and prepared for battle. They'd trained for this moment. And sure, many of them were farmers who were simply on a tour of duty, so their training was limited. But this was their purpose. This was why they were armed and armored. They were here to protect their lands and their families from these voracious pirates. It was a sacred duty that had been filled by generations of peasants turned warriors since the days of Alfred and Guthrum, and they would defend these lands and purge them of the Viking threat. So shields were readied, and they prepared for battle. Except it didn't. Something went wrong, and the English army broke. The Chronicle gives us no record as to the reason why the Ferd broke but we do know that the collapse happened before the fighting even really began. And we're told that the Vikings claimed victory in the aftermath. So it's quite likely that in addition to losing the battle, many of the Ferd were also cut down as they ran from the field. But there is a hint in another record that might give an indication as to what happened here. On that same year, we're told that Elderman Athelweird of the Western Provinces had died. Now we don't know how, nor do we know precisely when in the year he died. So we can't say for certain whether he died as a result of this fight. But this was the elderman who would have most likely called the Ferd into Dorset. So his death, this close to the collapse of the Ferd, 
might give us a hint as to what happened here. And one possibility is that he died before the army was assembled, and the absence of a strong leader had caused a lack of morale. The other option is that he did call the Ferd, and he did march with them, but he died early in the fighting, and that caused the army to break. And of course, it's always possible that neither of these events are actually connected at all. We really don't know. But what we do know is that things in the western provinces were not going well. Their elderman was dead, the Ferd had been broken, and the Viking army was continuing its march. And after it looted some more settlements, another English army was called. And their task was simple. Defeat the Vikings and save England. It was a task that would have made their ancestors proud. A task fit for a hearthward. A task that king and country desperately needed them to complete. So the members of the Ferd came from their burrs and villages. And they assembled at the appointed location under the command of their thanes and other nobles. And they marched. And before long, they spotted the Viking army. So they took position on the field, readied their shields, and then, yeah, they fled again. And once again, the Vikings claimed victory, likely striking at the fleeing army as they ran for their lives. Throughout 998, this happened again and again. And England wasn't short on soldiers of the Ferd, nor apparently was the Ferd reluctant to answer when it was called. The English army assembled, and not only that, but they marched to meet the Vikings as ordered. But something always went wrong. We're told that, quote, as soon as they were to have joined battle, a flight was always instigated by some means, end quote. And since the Ferd did actually assemble, and it did actually march to the battlefield, I suspect that the problem wasn't that the Ferd didn't want to fight. Rather, I think it was the nobles who didn't want to fight. The style of noble who held to the old honor culture, nobles like Burtnoth, were now rare. Most of that old guard was now in the ground, and those who were left were old. And in their place, a new culture of nobles had risen. Nobles who were born to their wealth. Nobles who, for generations now, had managed to largely avoid the trials of battle that were rites of passage for their forebears. This new nobility rose and fell not on their ability to acquire lands through fighting, but rather through their ability to acquire lands through politics. They were courtiers, not warriors. The days of Penda were long gone, and even the days of Alfred, where a young athling of 15 would be expected to join their fathers and uncles on campaign, were now generations past. And that was bad, because the Vikings were back, and what England needed were the warriors of Chinnawolf. Thanes who stood and fought against overwhelming numbers, even though death was certain, simply because they wouldn't abandon their duty. Because so strong was their love of their lord and their lands. That was what was needed. But instead, what England had were the Kardashians. Nobles who knew money, but not military. Who knew style, not strategy. This was the Dark Age Firefest crowd, and at the top were nobles like Elfrich of Hampshire, the man who wanted to avoid a fight so badly that he tipped off the Vikings about England's surprise attack before taking off with half the English fleet. That was the type of person who was in charge these days. There was nothing noble left in England's nobility. 
so the Vikings moved ever deeper into English territory. And while the Ferd was available, and it did generally answer when called, for some reason, once it was time to take a hit for the team and risk it all for the good of the kingdom, it broke. And all of Dorset suffered as a result. Their possessions, their livestock, even their family members were being seized by these pirates and taken away for sale at the markets of Dublin, Dumbarton, and elsewhere. And the English ruling classes were apparently powerless to do anything about it. But Dorset was only so big. And eventually, the raiders got all they could out of the region. So they moved on. But not towards home. Instead, they went to the Isle of Wight. And they occupied it. And that wasn't a bad idea. Overall, it was a highly defensible location, especially for a sea-based army. And at the same time, it could also serve as a launch pad for further raids. Which meant that all of a sudden, Hampshire and Sussex found themselves in a tremendous amount of danger. But fear not, this was Hampshire, which meant that Elderman Elfrich of Hampshire was on the case. And he was the king's former chief counselor, not to mention the veteran of, well, maybe not a battle, but hey, he had been part of a fleet of ships that later ended up in battle, and we'll just ignore that part where he sold the fleet out and fled before the battle took place. And so, with such an august leader in the position to handle this existential threat, Elderman Elfridge of Hampshire did what he did best. He bought off the Vikings. And not wanting to be left holding the bag, so did the Elderman of Sussex. And thus, after a profitable summer and fall spent stealing everything in Dorset that wasn't nailed down, the Viking army then had a nice winter holiday on the Isle of Wight, helpfully financed by the good people of Hampshire and Sussex. And as for that title of the Elderman of the Western Provinces, well, now that Athelweird was dead, you would expect the title to go to his son, Athelmar. I mean, Athelweird was an incredibly powerful member of the king's council, and he was also an extended family member of the king. Furthermore, his son had been part of that same council, and so all the stars were aligned for Athelmar to inherit his father's title. But he didn't. Now, another powerful claimant for that title was the king's uncle, Ordwulf. And like Athelmar and Athelweird, he was also part of that powerful inner council. But he didn't get the title either. Instead, the king let the seat remain empty. And that makes me wonder if, with the death of Elderman Athelweird and the increasing age of the Dowager Queen Elthrith, maybe the power of their faction was losing its hold on the king. And that brings us to the following year. With England collapsing under the weight of its useless nobles, and the Vikings, freshly rested from their winter holiday, ready to party like it's 999. But the question was, where to go? I mean, Dorset had already been looted, and nearby Hampshire and Sussex had already paid Danegelds, which had a similar impact to being raided, except it was with the blessing of your own lords. The western countryside had been picked clean. So the Vikings boarded their ships, sailed from the Isle of Wight, and made their way east. They went past Portsmouth and Hastings, around Ramsgate, and moved towards the Isle of Sheppey, towards the Thames estuary. But rather than moving on London, the raiders turned their ships and headed into the river Medway and moored near Rochester. And there, 
They laid siege to the wealthy lands that had so often been treasured properties of powerful bishops and royal family members. But Rochester was a burr. It was defensible. Moreover, it had backup. Only about 30 miles to the east was the ancient city of Canterbury, and about 30 miles to the west was London. Each of those cities held troops that could be called to the defense of Rochester. This entire region was a fortress. And sure enough, as the Vikings prepared their siege lines, the Ferd of Kent was called. Farmers turned soldiers were amassed from the surrounding territories, assembled, and then they made their way towards Rochester. We aren't told who they were led by, nor are we told who joined them or from where. But we are given the impression that, such as this force was, it was less than they had hoped. But the Kentishmen were not going to abandon Rochester. And when they arrived, they faced a vast Viking host full of well-fed and well-rested veteran warriors. But despite the odds, the Kentish Ferd held fast. Because they knew something that the Vikings didn't. They knew that they were just one portion of the English response to this threat. Other Ferds had been called. Other nobles had been instructed to gather their forces and meet them here, just off the coast of the Medway. And together, they would end this menace once and for all. So the Kentish Ferd arrayed their forces, formed into their shield walls, and prepared to hold their ground against the oncoming rush of veteran Viking warriors. And before long, they were shield to shield with them, clashing spears and swords with the Vikings. And we're told that the Ferd of Kent fought stoutly, but they were clearly waiting for support. They needed support. They could only fight so long against these odds. In any moment now, horses would appear on the horizon carrying the Ferds that were promised. Any moment now. They just had to hold on a little longer. Meanwhile, men were screaming. Men were wounded. Men were dying. And as the fighting went on, and as the Kentish shield wall was weakening, they looked for their reinforcements. They looked for their salvation. And there, on the horizon, headed towards the battlefield, was nothing. No, no one was coming. And I'm sure it didn't take long in the face of such overwhelming odds for the Vikings to open up a hole in the Kentish shield wall. And then the dying truly began. The hope for reinforcements shattered, and with it, so did their morale and the whole of the shield wall. In moments, the Ferd of Kent was fleeing on foot from the field, desperately attempting to protect themselves from the rush of pirates who were chasing after them, looking to exploit the situation. And so panicked was their flight that they didn't even run to their horses, which were hitched nearby. They just fled headlong into the surrounding countryside. Anything to get away from the danger. It had only taken a few minutes. But one moment, the Vikings were fighting for their lives. And in the next, they were standing victorious, with Rochester completely undefended and a bunch of horses to boot. The Chronicle places the sole responsibility of this disaster on some form of support which was due to come to aid the Kentishmen, but never did. Now, frustratingly, it doesn't tell us who this support was supposed to come from, or even how the failure happened, just that it didn't come. For example, 
even though I told the story as one where the supporting Fords never arrived, it's possible that a Ferd from London, Essex, and Hampshire, and maybe even elsewhere, did come to Rochester. But then, rather than coming to the defense of the Kentish Ferd once the fighting began, they simply turned their forces and left. It's possible. And actually, based on the way the nobility of this era operated, let's be honest, it's more than possible. That's one hell of a way to get rid of a rival, right? But now that the Kentish army had been crushed, and even worse, had left their horses behind, that meant that the Viking army was now Viking cavalry. And they turned their forces and ravaged almost all of Western Kent. And apparently, whatever forces that England had left were unable or unwilling to counter the assault. And recognizing that his nobles were unwilling to meet the Vikings in the field, especially when they could easily board their ships and move elsewhere, King Athelred and his council determined that the best course of action would be to bring a naval force to blockade the Vikings, and that would give their land forces enough time to gather and hopefully force the pirates into a battle with the full English army. You know, assuming that they'd actually show up this time. So the king ordered his nobles to prepare their forces. If they had ships, they were required to gather their crews and ready them. If they were responsible for maintaining a ferd, then they were instructed to arm and armor their men. And we're not told how long this took, but considering that the Vikings, quote, ravaged almost all West Kent, end quote, I'm thinking that they must have been left to their own devices for quite some time. But eventually, the ships were ready. And knowing that, the English army marched forth and approached the Viking force. But remember, the plan was to squeeze the Viking army between a combined land and sea attack. So they needed to wait for the naval force to arrive. That's fine. That naval force should be arriving any minute now. Any minute now. And yeah, let's be honest. We all know where this is headed. It is not going down for real. At least not for the English. Not under these nobles. The navy was nowhere to be seen. And the chronicle tells us that every time the ships were ready to set sail, the nobles, quote, delayed from day to day and oppressed the wretched people who were on the ships, end quote. So what it's saying is the nobility who were put in charge were deliberately keeping the ships moored. But it doesn't tell us why. I mean, maybe they were afraid. Maybe they didn't trust their king's plan. Maybe they thought that the nobles on the ground weren't going to keep their word. I mean, factionalism was pretty deeply entrenched by this point. Or maybe they were counting on the land forces to be fielded and were hoping that the Vikings would take out a few of their rivals for them. Whatever the case, the ships were staying anchored. And the sailors who wanted to rush to the support of their compatriots on the ground, probably because their homes were undefended and this was the one chance to have actual safety, well, they were forced to stand down. And given the language used... My guess is that the nobles maintained their hold on power through brutality on their own men. So, there would be no support for the land forces. And that meant for the Vikings, rather than being outnumbered and forced to fight a war on two fronts, they were actually holding the larger force. And, seeing that their dominance on the seas was unchallenged, they were also free to further reinforce their army. And as the English army fruitlessly waited for the naval force to uphold its duty, we're told that the Viking force increased. 
and once they felt their numbers were of a sufficient size, they advanced on the English Ferd. And as for the Ferd, they likely believed that reinforcements were still coming, so they took a tactical retreat, and the Danes followed, and so the English retreated further, which led the Danes to chase them even deeper into the countryside. And eventually, it was clear that no help was coming. And then the army broke. Again. England had spent a tremendous amount of its dwindling resources preparing for this attack. And in the end, through the cowardice and incompetence of its nobility, they had gained nothing. Instead, they lost even more blood and treasure and further encouraged the Viking crews. Because England was now clearly a Viking hunting ground. Its people and land were thoroughly undefended, and the kingdom's nobility wouldn't even bother putting up a token resistance. So what red-blooded raider could resist green pastures such as those? So I guess, from a certain perspective, it's going down for it. if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on a bunch of social media, and you can find links to all of them in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Shake for a shake of the one